Welcome to Pilates 101, the podcast where we bring you the latest and most up-to-date information on anything and everything to do with the Pilates industry to help you build your dreams and your businesses right now. Hello everyone, my name is Glenn Withers, I'm one of the founders of APPI and it's my pleasure to be joining you yet again for another Pilates 101 podcast. So I have a real sort of key focus of today and I, I hope that you enjoy this. I hope you understand the reasonings behind a sort of mini rant slash educational focus for this month's podcast. Uh, before I, I get into the, the meat of what I want to talk about today, which is about shoulders, and I'm going on a bit of a rant about the fact that people think shoulders uh, no, that's not right. Look, shoulders can be challenging, but they're actually quite straightforward and simple to understand. And so that's what I'm going to focus on. But before I do, I do want to give a big shout out to my homeland, to all of our APPI family and friends. Um, a big shout out to Sarah Todd and all the Unite Health team, which are the APPI license holders in Australia that do an amazing job of delivering our education around that great country where I was born. Australia's in a tough time. We have all been through it. Um, the world has been through it. And unfortunately, right now, it's Australia's turn to find, sort of face the full brunt of this pandemic. Um, guys, we are thinking of you. Our heart and our prayers go out to you. Um, of course, my own family is there and I'm in touch with them regularly so I have a decent understanding of what's happening but you never ever know what's really going on in a country if you're not living in that country and going through it on a daily basis and so to Sarah to the Unite Health team to our APPI presenters and our APPI family and community and the wider Pilates and physio community there in Australia um, we're thinking of you um, we all look forward to seeing you guys come out the other side and um, we hope the uh, government there makes some, some good choices about how to move forward. All right, so thank you for indulging me there. Let's get on to the focus of today. Shoulders, shoulders, shoulders. All right, um, I'm going to try and sort of, you know, hold back on the, the pun of, you know, the, the, the weight on the shoulders, the weight of the world on your shoulders, all of those things I probably could have gone for, but I'm purely going to talk about shoulders. Now, look, I love working with shoulders. I'm fascinated by the mechanics of the shoulder itself. Um, and as many of you know, um, it is a special interest of mine. However, I see time and time again, shoulders just being really, really poorly managed. And part of the reason that I was inspired to come on today and talk about shoulders is I was having an interesting conversation just a, a week or two ago with a shoulder consultant. And the consultant said to me, well, look, Glenn, we send our patients as a, a medical practitioner, a surgical consultant, an orthopod. Um, now, we send our patients to many physios. Why would we send ours to you? What do you do differently? And I said, well, I can't talk about what everyone else does. And perhaps this isn't different. But what I can tell you is how we manage shoulders. And the one thing that I think I will say to you is um, we need to ensure that people aren't managing shoulders by basing it around resisted external rotation exercises. And if 
that's what we're looking at from a point of view of rehabbing a shoulder, then I think that's, um, that's quite a mistaken process. Um, now, in saying that, I guess I was trying really to just ensure to let the surgeon know that I was up to date and I was up to speed with everything. But this shocked this particular surgeon. And he was like, well, what do you mean? Isn't that the mainstay of shoulder rehab? I mean, that's what most of the reports I get back is that my client, the, the, the patients I send to the physios are on a um, you know, rotated cuff program. And I'm like, well, yes, hopefully they are on a rotated cuff program, but that doesn't mean banging out resisted external rotation exercises because you know the evidence shows us that actually that can be a large part of the problem, not necessarily the solution. Um, and this conversation went on, and I guess I was just a little bit taken aback about how different this particular surgeon thought our approach to shoulder management was. And so I was like, okay, well, let me think over this a little bit more. What have those clients that come to me been doing? And it did make me look back. I went over a few of the uh, the clients that have come and looked at what they were doing prior to attending us. And it does seem to be a significant pattern that people are still managing shoulder dysfunction by looking at it from purely a rotator cuff dysfunction point of view, not necessarily looking at the mechanics of the shoulder. And then I looked into um, you know, a, a range of articles around it and the, a number of articles spoke about the importance of rotator cuff stability and the importance of turning off the upper trapezius. And yet again, I was like, oh my gosh, okay, maybe I've got this wrong because actually I think the upper trapezius is significantly weak in a lot of people with shoulder dysfunctions. Yes, yes, okay, it might be tight, but that doesn't mean that it's overactive. It might be acting a lot more, trying to do a lot more, but those things are different components of how a shoulder works. Um, so what I thought I would do is say, okay, well, let me purely put forward to you guys my approach to shoulder management. Now, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, and I'm happy to listen to other people's ideas about how to manage the shoulder, for sure. And there's many different ideas, and I am one to respect everyone's views. All I can do, I guess, is come on here and say, why would an amazingly experienced shoulder consultant who's sending shoulder patients to physios purely think all we do is rotator cuff strengthening, i.e. external rotation strengthening in a shoulder? So, for a moment, I'm going to take a, a little step back here, okay, and just make sure we are all on the same page. So, when we're talking about managing shoulder dysfunctions, okay, we're talking about the concept of the shoulder complex. So, we're not talking purely about the glenohumeral joint, we're talking about the shoulder complex. Now, the shoulder complex, naturally, we're looking at the, the, the scapula, the key component of shoulder function, we're looking at the, the clavicle above and the humerus coming down the side as well. Now, of course, within that, we have the cremioclavicular joint, the glenohumeral joint, and then we have the sternoclavicular joint, and we have our articulations, our subacromial and subscapulothoracic articulations. Okay, now, across all of these joints, again, as you all know, and I'm not going to go through the muscles, but we all know there's around about 16 different muscles crossing some or all of these joints. So when you talk about shoulder mechanics, shoulder function, and of course, shoulder rehabilitation, we 
surely can't be focusing just on one or two muscles. There's 16 different muscles that need to be considered in how we manage rehabilitation of a shoulder. Right, so we're talking about rehabilitating the shoulder. So let's then say, right, well, what is the purpose of the shoulder in the first place? And we all know, and you all know, and I'm, you know, please understand, I'm not making any assumptions here that you guys don't know this. I'm just talking background information here, okay? We all know that really the most important process of any sort of rehabilitation that we do is looking to retrain function, okay? So it's no different when we're looking at the shoulder. So the first question we might ask ourselves is, okay, if I'm rehabilitating a shoulder complex, what is it that I'm actually trying to achieve? And simple matter is we're trying to achieve normal function, right? So what is that normal function? Effectively, um, to place the hand in space in order to allow that function, um, lots of research on this, okay? Scott, Mottram, um, Padke, lots of different um, research has been done into this. They've told us it needs to act as a link in a kinetic chain. And this is a vital, vital point, okay? It is a link in a kinetic chain. That is what normal function is around the, the shoulder complex. It is a link in a kinetic chain. It's not independent. It's certainly not independent down to a couple of muscles. There's 16 muscles that cross those multiple um, components of the shoulder complex, and it is a link in a kinetic chain. And that kinetic chain has a large component of transmitting forces from the trunk to the upper limb and vice versa. And it's that trunk connection that I think is one of the most crucial things that we need to understand in rehabilitation. And not just in overall rehabilitation, but how do we start? What's the process? What is a sort of typical program in how we manage the shoulder complex? Now, again, we must understand that the shoulder complex is multidirectional, as you all know. That's a great thing in terms of the way that it functions. That's part of the challenging thing for us as rehabbers to do. And it provides a fixed base for intricate activities involving the arm and hand. So the hand function, the wrist function, is reliant on a good base of support. No different to the way that the back functions, the way that the hip functions, the way that the knee functions, right? And the more and more you look into the body and the more experience you come with rehabilitation, you actually realize that all of this amazing research that's out there, actually it all comes back to pretty similar components, no matter what part of the body you're looking at. And so research from many years ago is actually, in my opinion, still very, very relevant today. We might just be looking at it in slightly different ways, but actually the basis of it is very simple. You need a stable base. There's certain muscles that help achieve that stable base, and then that stable base allows for greater function away from it. And as you get further away, you use bigger muscles, more complex exercise movements as well. But actually the com components and the way we rehab and the method of rehabilitation actually is pretty straightforward when we think about it. All right, so we're looking at this purpose of the, the shoulder to allow this, this normal function. So what is required for that to happen? Well, crucially, 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 for the shoulder to do what we want with all these multi-directional movements and helping the arm and the hand in space, arm and hand function, etc., is that it must have a stable base to work from. So what is that stable base that we're talking about? Of course, you will naturally go straight to the scapula, and of course, that's a vital, vital component, but so is the entire trunk, you yeah? know? So the pelvis, the trunk, and the scapulothoracic stability is all required for good shoulder function, okay? 
So again, when we're rehabbing a shoulder, we can't just be thinking about the shoulder. We have to be thinking about, okay, well, where does the shoulder support come from? And that shoulder support comes from a really consistent, stable base in what we're doing. All right. Now, we, we know that we need a, you know, a coordinated movement pattern for that to happen, and that we need to have dissociated movements of the glenohumeral and the scapulothoracic joint. And this brings me on to another little part of my rant, okay? And, and again, I'm, I'm probably talking to the converted out there for sure. But this is where I'm going to have a little bit of, maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe, a little bit of um, controversy around what I'm going to say to you guys right now, principally out there in the Pilates world. Now, I'm only talking here about my own uh, expression, okay? My own experience, shall I say, all right? In my experience of a lot of Pilates training that I've seen out there, and a lot of people that have done other Pilates training and then come on to ours, is that way too much emphasis with the way we teach the exercises is put onto the rhomboids. Okay, when you're looking at how the shoulder functions, it's not about rhomboid activity, in my opinion. Okay, I think rhomboid major specifically is massively overactive in a dyskinetic shoulder. And that a lot of Pilates exercises in the way that they're designed can lead to over-reliance on rhomboid activity, especially a lot of them um, machine-based exercises if they're not taught in the right way. And by machine, I'm talking the, the apparatus, the reformer Cadillac chair exercises. So I don't believe it's a rhomboid focus that we should be looking at. I'm talking about coordinated activity of the scapulothoracic complex. So when we, we look at that, um, we need to look at that, that complex of, okay, well, what is it that's, that's the problem, right? So we have a shoulder that is not functioning correctly. Why is that the case? Now, you all know, we all know as movement professionals that the challenge with the shoulder is that it is an inherently unstable joint, okay? Or an inherently unstable, um, yeah, an inherently unstable joint. You've got this very large humeral head and this very small glenoid that it sits in. And so joint congruity is very, very poor, unlike the hip, okay? Both ball and socket joints, but the hip is a much more stable, much more coherent ball and socket joint versus the shoulder that's a very poorly connected joint. So that stability is extremely dependent on active muscular control. Okay. Again, being in many re research, Motram stuff is brilliant on looking at this whole sort of you know, motion control problem and kinetic uh, alignment within the shoulder. And so we have this concept of um, sort of abnormal motion or symptomatic abnormal motion of the glenohumeral joint. And symptomatic abnormal motion of the hemoglenohumeral joint is effectively that instability type concept of the shoulder. Okay? Now, it can, you can present itself, as, as Jaggy and Lambert talk about in their research, um, as pain or a sense of displacement. Okay? That might be subluxation, that might be dislocation, etc. So it can represent shoulder instability or dysfunctional shoulders. It's not just pain. Yeah? It, it often represents as pain. But it could also um, present as a pain or this concept of instability that it's popping in and out. Okay. Now, when we talk more on the pain side, what are those common things we see? Again, you guys know this, right? Posture, huge issue. Right? We have that rounded thoracic spine, that 
forward protracted scapula, and then that leads to the concept of impingement, and that's one of the most um, common uh, causes of shoulder dysfunction, isn't it? And so we come into shoulder elevation, what should happen is the humeral head will roll up a little bit, slide down a little, and then continue to roll. And it's that roll, slide, roll motion of the humerus in the glenoid controlled by this, the shoulder muscular complex that allows normal shoulder elevation. So what happens in dysfunction is often as the, glen, as the humeral head rolls up in the glenoid, it doesn't get pulled back down. The slide component doesn't happen and therefore it rolls up, punches into or put, um, puts some pressure on to those tendons that come through the subacromial space and we lead to impingement. Yeah. But other things such as poor stability of the entire kinetic chain can be a characteristic of a shoulder pathology. So... Um, there's a significant amount of um, evidence out there that will show us that a 20% decrease in kinetic energy delivered from the hip and trunk to the arm necessitates an 80% increase in mass or a 34% increase in rotational velocity at the shoulder to deliver the same resultant force to the hand. Okay, so this is Padke way back in 2009 talking about this. Okay, so I'll just repeat that. I'm going to take it a little bit slower because I think this is a really crucial point in understanding how to manage shoulders correctly. A 20% decrease in kinetic energy delivered from the hip and trunk to the arm necessitates an 80% increase in mass or 34% increase in rotational velocity at the shoulder to deliver the same resultant force in the hand. Okay. So in essence, what this is telling us is that a 20% decrease in your trunk or your hip and trunk strength stability whatever word you want to put to that means the shoulder must work so much harder to deliver the same motion or action to the hand okay so if we have a significant weakness in our back or our hip that puts the shoulder under a lot of stress therefore may present with the shoulder pathology Right? You look at the shoulder in isolation and you don't fix the underlying cause, i.e. the trunk and hip decreasing control and strength, that person is set to have a recurrence of their shoulder injury. So take that forward a couple of steps. How do we rehab a shoulder? Well, we must include trunk and hip strengthening work in all our shoulder programs. We can't ignore the rest of the body when we're looking at shoulder mechanics. And importantly, we have to do that quite early on. Okay, so let's look at it from another point of view here, okay? Trunk stabilization exercises. Well, Lewis, again, way back in 2009, guys, these are not new studies. And I'm doing this deliberately, right? Because everyone says, when you're talking about research, if it's not within the last two to three years, it's not relevant. Well, actually, there's an enormous amount of knowledge that we have that wasn't just done in the last two or three years. Okay, way back in 2009, Lewis looked at the concept that trunk stabilization exercises may be introduced to prior to and incorporated into specific shoulder work. So he's saying that actually if we look at the true issue of kinetic chain stability in relation to shoulder function, we don't necessarily have to start directly with this concept of external rotation of the shoulder. And that he's actually saying that maybe trunk 
stabilization exercises could be one of the first exercises or first components of an exercise brought into shoulder pathology. And I happen to agree with him predominantly. I think we have to look at the scapular positioning and the dyskinesis that happens within knowing where the shoulder blade should sit relevant to function. And then, yes, we need to look at that trunk control and a bunch of other stuff way before we start looking at any sort of external rotation work. And I'm not saying that external rotation exercises aren't relevant. It's when are they relevant and just how much of a focus of the, comp- of the program should they be. All right. Um, he go, uh, Lewis goes on to say that integrated rehabilitation with training of larger muscles of the lower extremities, hip and trunk, help facilitate scapular control, whereas hip and, um, sorry, that uh, hip and trunk flexion exercises facilitate scapular protraction, i.e. not what we're after, whereas hip and trunk extension exercises facilitate retraction or repositioning of the scapula, which is what we want. So hip exercises are a crucial part of shoulder rehabilitation. Now, um, if any of you have done your sessions with me, you'll know that I do this little sort of um, workshop where we look purely at hip extension increasing shoulder elevation. And it's really, really astonishing. When you have an arm that is struggling to get elevation, what working on hip mobilization into extension can actually do immediately before you've even touched the shoulder. Okay, so just a little throw out um, there. I might do some... um, videos and other stuff on it on um, our various Instagram channels as well. But this is the, the, the component I'm trying to get to, okay? When you're talking about shoulder function and how to rehabilitate a shoulder correctly, we want to make sure that we teach the client where the scapula should be in space. We want to make sure that we bring in trunk stability exercises. We want to bring in hip stability exercises and importantly, hip extension stability exercises. And then we need to look at a whole raft of the other component of how the shoulder blade may be in, in, put into poor positions. And a large amount of that is thoracic mobility, right? If your thoracic spine is as stiff as anything and you're just focusing on the shoulder function, then that becomes very difficult again because that thoracic spine, if it's falling into a kyphotic position, and is stuck there, then it's very much harder for you to get the control of the shoulder blade on that underlying poor spinal position. So we're going to look at it from this sort of bigger picture view. All right, so the shoulder blade, I touched on it there. Um, my view is that shoulder blade and that scapular positioning is crucial in how we begin a rehabilitation program of the shoulder. So again, uh, Kibler, Padke, uh, Mottram, a whole bunch of these excellent researchers that have put an enormous amount of information out there for us. Talk about the roles of the, the scapula as a stable base for glenohumeral articulation, uh, an elevation of the acromion to avoid impingement. So we have to get shoulder mechanics, shoulder, the, the shoulder blade moving. And again, that's a crucial part in our cueing, in our Pilates exercises. And again, I talk about this a lot in our training. Too many people teach Pilates by trying to set the shoulder blade and keep it there. And you're asking your client to do shoulder elevation exercises, but your cue is keep the shoulder set. Well, it just doesn't function that way, does it? 
As we go into arm elevation, the scapula will move. It has to, and it has to move because if it doesn't, we're creating impingement scenarios for our clients. So we need to make sure that we cue in the appropriate way to ensure that our cues are leading to the actual mechanics of whatever joint it is that we're looking at. Um, all right, so let's uh, talk about that for a moment. Um, normal scapular humeral rhythm. And again, I know you guys know this, but it would be remiss of me not to touch on it in a little sort of podcast rant that I'm having, having here now. All right, so normal rhythm, as you know, flexion, taking the arm forwards up in front of you, first zero to 60 degrees predominantly occurs in the glenohumeral joint. So at that point, the scapula is staying still and set, and importantly, still and set in the right position. But then as we go above that, we have this two-to-one ratio of the scapula to the humerus. And so that means that the scapula must start to move, it must start to glide, and we need a controlled motion of that glide to happen. In abduction, zero to 30 degrees, the initial component there into abduction, taking it out from to the side, is in the glenohumeral joint. But then above that, again, we have this two to one um, articulation ratio of scapula to humeral head. So again, as we're taking our arms out to the side, we need to ensure that we have the, the that our cues are not cueing our clients to keep the shoulder blade fixed in any way, shape, or form. It does need to move. And this brings me on to this concept of mechanics around the shoulder and the idea I said before about upper trapezius. Now, I understand that the majority of people that come in with a shoulder issue probably have tightness in their upper trap. But does that mean that the upper trap is weak? Um, uh, sorry, does that mean the upper trap is strong? And I don't believe it is. I see a lot of problems with the fact that upper trapezius still has a role in maintaining normal components of what the shoulder blade does. However, it must be offset and managed by lower trapezius and serratus anterior work. And so you get this beautiful triangle of muscle function around the shoulder. Upper trap above, lower trap below, serratus anterior, excuse me, on the inside, all controlling how the shoulder blade moves on the rib cage and how it sets and moves that glenoid in order to optimize humeral function. So what you see in a lot of people is the shoulder is painful and that pain may lead to the shoulder dropping a little bit. Now that puts upper trap on stretch, on tension. And so we sometimes misconstrue that stretch and tension of upper trap as it being way too tight. Therefore, we don't exercise it. So I'm not saying that you don't need to do your soft tissue work on the upper trap. I think you do. I'm not saying you don't need to stretch the upper trap. I think you do. But I also think you need to strengthen the upper trapezius just as much as that lower trapezius serratus anterior components in order to achieve good function and good dynamic scapular stability. Okay. So um, what are we looking at? If we're looking at it from a point of view of good scapular control, good scapular movement, um, well, we know that the common patterns of abnormal or uncontrolled movement are that the scapula will often downwardly rotate. And that's one of the crucial things that we don't want to see, right? We don't want that downward rotation. We often get this anterior tilt of the, the glenoid that puts everything forwards and can lead onto the, the impingement that we spoke about and touched on. 
Um, and that winging of the scapula, that you know, very common serratus anterior weakness that you see. All right, now the result of these things is often an inferior and anterior position of the glenoid, and as a result of the scapular position, the glenoid is in the wrong position, and then that leads on to those impingement syndromes. All right, so how do we rehab that? How do we address that? Well, we do need to address the overactivity in pec minor and rhomboids. And from a Pilates point of view, this is where I need you guys to really just consider what your cues are, what your exercises are doing. In shoulder dysfunction, rhomboids and rhomboids are often overactive and we need to not or not cue our clients into rhomboid exercises. We need to be looking at lower trap, serratus anterior, and controlled balance into upper trap with that. We need to avoid pec minor taking over. So the initial positioning of an exercise program is really important, okay? So I never ever start my clients lying on their back. We always start our shoulder rehab in prone. Prone has been proven to be a position whereby you can switch off that overactivity of the pec minor, increase activity of your posterior shoulder muscles, and allow a much more consistent starting phase to your shoulder exercises. So when I'm rehabbing anyone, be it giving a home exercise program, being a purely mat work, or if I'm working with them in the studio, we always start prone line, looking at scapular control positioning, and then we progress on from there. All right, so let's talk about this issue around the rotator cuff muscles, okay? So it's not that supraspinatus, infraspinatus, resisted external rotation exercises are wrong. It's not. But let's look at what it is we're trying to do. Okay, now the rotator cuff muscles exhibit their most important function as a presetting function, just like transversus abdominis was spoken about years and years ago. And again, just like TA, multifidus, um, many of the other stabilizing muscles in the body, 44% of the rotator cuff fibers are slow twitch muscles, slow twitch fibers. So almost half of their makeup is not designed as pure strength work. It's designed as control, postural work. So we must look at that and say, okay, maybe there is this concept of local muscle system dysfunction in the shoulder, and we need to ensure we retrain that presetting function before we go on to add in any load or resistance to our exercises as well. So again, you know, not new. Look at this research here, 2008, 2010, 2015. A lot of this is not new, guys. Lewis talking about the presetting function is lost due to altered afferent feedback and subsequent changes in muscle firing patterns. Okay, so that presetting function is lost in your shoulder pathologies. Again, just like we saw in low back pain, in hip pain, in knee pain, in neck pain. You see a relative decrease in rotator cuff activity and increase in middle deltoid during humeral elevation in subjects with shoulder impingement. Yeah. However, however, a lack of a stable base of origin or decreased facilitation of proximal muscles can create an apparent weakness of those rotator cuff muscles. So it's, it's agreed in the literature here that a relative decrease in rotator cuff activity during humeral head elevations is seen in people with shoulder impingements. But the bigger question is, well, okay, where is that weakness coming from? Because it may well be that a lack of proximal muscle activation, uh, weakness into the, the trunk may show or appear as a 
sort of pseudo rotator cuff weakness, but actually the weakness is in other parts of that kinetic chain and it's just been presented as a shoulder dysfunction, but we have to look further down the line of the body as well. All right, now in terms of what you're seeing with the shoulder, you know, impingement is the biggest component here and what we'll see probably day in, day out in Pilates studios and physio Pilates centers. So it accounts for around 44 to 65% of all shoulder pain. I'm not going to go into all the relevant different types of impingements that are out there. You guys know that, or we can come onto the relative courses to look into that in more depth. But we know that impingement is a big deal. But we know that impingement is effectively caused by everything we've just been talking about. It's caused by dyskinetic shoulder complex function. Right? So the role of our rehabilitation has got to ensure that our focus is rehabilitating the entire shoulder complex function, not just focusing on a couple of individual muscles because they're known to a lot of people and it's a key phrase when people talk about shoulder injuries. Okay, so if we talk about specific rotator cuff strengthening, okay, it is good, it's great, but it can only take place in a foundation of central core and scapular stability. So that tells you where we need to start our rehab, right? We need to start by looking at that scapula and core control. The true aspect of our rotator cuff has got to be making sure we get that presetting function. Yep, so closed chain exercises stimulate that muscle coactivation and proprioception much better than open chain exercises. Prone position tends to inhibit the pecs and lats, and so that's a really, really good position to focus on, especially early on in our exercises. And we want to start again with smaller movements and gradually progress to larger, more complex movements. And so all of this came from a Lewis study in 2009. So that's a long time ago now. So none of what I'm saying to you really is very new. It's just that it keep getting you know, a little bit surprised that we're not all talking about this and we're not all pretty much doing the same things. You know, I know many of us are, but clearly we're not all doing the same thing here. All right. Um, Let's talk about sort of what exactly it is that I would do. Okay, so now we're going to talk about, okay, a client comes, we do our relevant assessment, and we think that there's an issue around this shoulder. Now, often, it's not the shoulder pathology, the name, the tag of what's going on in the shoulder that dictates the rehabilitation. It's what you see in front of you. So it might be a, a myriad of different tags or pathologies or diagnosis given to the shoulder, but actually the way you manage it will come down to the way that it's functioning. And the way that it's functioning is often very, very similar. So to correct that dysfunction, often we can have a pretty straightforward approach. So we know the prone line is an important place to start. We know that scapular positioning is an important place to start. And so that's exactly where I do start with pretty much all of my shoulder rehab programs. So I'm going to start with a modified breaststroke prep in prone line. So lying on the stomach, we relax the shoulders, hands by the side. We teach correct scapular positioning, okay, so setting of that scapula onto the rib cage, ensuring no downward rotation, ensuring no rhomboid overactivity. So it's not a retraction, it's not a downward rotation, it is a positioning of that inferior angle onto the rib cage and a posterior motion of what is often an anteriorly positioned um, acromion and glenoid position to reposition the shoulder. 
you hold that position. Often you're using your hands to facilitate that. Maybe it's a little bit of PNF retraining initially. And then hold that and it's the breaststroke prep where you're just lifting one arm off the floor, hand goes back down, release the shoulder. And it's this sequence that's quite important. Position the shoulder blade, float the hand, hand down, release the shoulder. And we might do 10 to 12, 15 repetitions on one side. We'll go and work on the other side just to keep us even and make sure that we're not going to cause an imbalance here. And then you can progress on to doing both sides at the same time. But when you do that, please ensure it now doesn't become a rhomboid activity. It's not a retraction. Set the shoulder, float the hands. Hands down, release, okay? So this is my first session now. Now I will come back to that position and as the weeks progress on, we take the hands further out to the side by creating increased lever length to increase the load on the scapula. But we're gonna start at neutral. And then we come up into four point kneeling. I'm gonna place the resistance bands around that lower, uh, uh, lower point of the, the scapula, that inferior angle, and it's gonna give us a little bit of feedback on where we need to go with the exercise. So four point kneeling, closed chain. We heard about some of the research earlier that says that, which is a good position. We're gonna use the band as a bit of feedback and resistance and just go in a few scapular isolation movements where you're letting the, drawing the shoulder blade back into position and then letting it come out of position. Drawing it back into position and letting it come out of position. Okay, and then you retrain that scapular set position in four point kneeling and then progress that on to an arm lift. So lifting the arm up forwards. Now because of the position of the band here, you're also keeping that closed chain and the draw of the band is drawing that glenohumeral, the, drawing the humeral head back into the glenoid through the exercise. So you're not leaving it out there without any support, okay? So breaststroke prep, modified breaststroke prep in prone, up into four point kneeling, scapulizes isolations with the resistance band, then onto an arm lift with the resistance band, and then holding the, the four point kneel position and bring in the hip movement. We know that retraining hip extension is crucial in firing up further up the chain. So we can bring in great serratus anterior exercises in the four point kneel position because we get that um, force compression that it likes into the, the shoulder blade. Fire up serratus a little bit from holding the spine still and then working through like a, a swimming legs movement, but in four point kneeling just with the legs. So arm only, then leg only. Okay, now, now that might be enough initially, but if you've got somebody good or you've got more time, the next step is that crucial connection into the trunk strength. Okay, so I've looked at scapular positioning. I started in prone to try and switch off pec minor, but I know I need to get some trunk strength in in order to know, know that when I load the shoulder, I'm not overloading the shoulder. And so our leg pulling prone exercise is perfect for this. You're in that position, progress onto a leg pulling prone prep, which is a little double knee lift, and you're in a very safe position for the shoulder as well. So bringing that in quite early into the program. From there, we come back down, we're back lying on our stomach, and we're gonna take whatever arm elevation that person can achieve pain-free, and go into a swimming level three. So opposite arm and hip movement. So now we're starting, now I said relevant arm elevation. So the arm can be bent at any degree here relative to what the client can handle. But we're doing opposite arm elevation and hip extension. 
looking at that posterior oblique sling, opening up the anterior fascial line to try and ensure that we can get good function into the back of that body. Okay, now the other thing that we need to look at is thoracic mobility. So we've done, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six exercises here, all based around that component. Notice none of that is lying on your side doing resisted external rotation. We're not there yet. We're setting up the body correctly. Now I'm going to go into an arm openings exercise to get a look at thoracic mobility. And then we're going to stand up and we're going to do what we call a shoulder shrug. Okay, now I'm coming onto that upper trap activation. So I've started in prone. I've gone onto sideline for some thoracic mobility. Um, we've come up into standing and we're going to look at, at what we call a shoulder shrug. Okay, but please don't just let them shrug the shoulder up and down. There's components to it. Okay, first set the shoulder blade, keep it set, float the arm out to around 30 degrees. Hold it, then the entire shoulder complex slowly shrugs up towards the back of the ear. Then you take the shoulder down, you hold, take the hand into the side, and then release the shoulder. Okay, set the shoulder, hand out to the side. Keep it there, the entire shoulder complex slowly shrugs up towards the back of the ear. You take it down, hand comes in, and you release. Okay, and we'll do about 20 of those exercises. Okay, so now we need to look at the components of tightness because obviously as a result of the shoulder dysfunction, there's tightness all over the place. And so now you can come into that standard upper trap stretch, opposite hand onto the head, slowly drawing the hand away, and a levator scap stretch where you turn, look under the armpit, hand towards the back of the head, and slowly draw down. Okay, then we come back and around. And then finally, let's just ensure that that pec minor is not getting in the way of our exercises. So a nice little stretch, hand sort of in standing, hand resting onto the door frame, step the closest leg forwards, lean forwards just to open the shoulder back, little bit of a stretch into that pec minor and that pec as a muscle group as well. So it's an 11 movement program. It's proven really, really successful for me over my career. And it's all based around the concept of what the evidence is telling us and not based around this antiquated view of having somebody just lie down on their side doing external rotation or in standing doing external rotation resistance exercises. Now, okay, I will move on to that. So again, please understand, I'm not saying that you don't do that. It's just please don't start with that as a rehab program for the shoulder. Start by teaching the scapula where it should be in its relevant position. Bring in some four-point kneeling exercises for closed chain control and waking up serratus anterior. Look at hip extension exercises and trunk strengthening exercises. Look at some thoracic mobility and look at some uh, muscle tension around the head and neck that might be impacting on the shoulder. And once you've got those foundations down, then of course you can go on and you can start doing more complex exercises, which would include some resisted external rotation exercises, some scaption-based exercises, and then starting to look at other things as a whole in terms of general muscle strength as well. So look guys, uh, I know it's very hard in a way for me to get some of this across in an audio format, um, so I will look to do um, you know, some other components around there. If you've been interested in this or it, it's um, proven interested to you, 
We are developing a lecture series on our um, APPI website. So if you would like me to do more of a video-based view of this, um, then please uh, let us know at the Institute. It's info at appihealthgroup.com. Um, but my, un- uh, yes, my message out there is don't be afraid of shoulders. Shoulders are great to rehab. Shoulders will respond to rehab. They can be really fascinating parts of the body to work with. They're not scary. The tag, the diagnosis, the pathology actually doesn't have as much of an impact in the way that we actually rehab this area of the body at all. So I hope that has been uh, okay. I'm sorry it would be seen as a bit more of a sort of rant-based start to our podcast there. But hopefully I've given you some food for thought. If nothing else, it's made you think about how we look at shoulders in general. So for now, guys, I wish you all the very best in your Pilates practice. Um, We here at APPI, once again, um, shout out to everyone around the world. Um, It's still a bizarre world we live in. But importantly, to our our friends and colleagues in Australia, um, also in New Zealand, you're coming out of it a little bit, but I understand that it's been a difficult time for you guys as well. But to our Antipodean friends, wishing you um, all the very best as you get a grips with this pandemic. To those of you around the world that are coming out of things, um, you know, I don't think there's ever been a time when our services have been more needed for our community. So I wish you all the very best. Uh, From Elisa, from myself, from all the team here at APPI, this has been Pilates 101. My name is Glenn Withers, and I'll see you at the next edition. Bye for now.